young people, help them to have uh, attention and to be able to sit carefully and listen to the things that are being taught. And, uh, Father, help us to rightly teach and to train uh, through Your Word. May they learn some things this week that will be a help to them and that they will be able to take even into their own homes and uh, be an encouragement to their parents in some ways. And so, Father, help us uh, tonight as we come to Your Word. May Your Holy Spirit guide us and direct us. And, Lord, that we would learn from uh, these verses tonight that we study. I pray that You would help us to learn truth that will make a difference and change our hearts and our lives that will draw us nearer and draw us closer to You. And, Father, as we leave this place, may we leave rejoicing and with our hearts refreshed from Your Word. And so help us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's turn to Revelation 12. And uh, sometimes um, when we study prophecy, uh, people think, well, it's, it's interesting and we learn a lot, but it really isn't, there's nothing in it for me. But in the very beginning of the book, the Bible gives a blessing to those that hear this word and read it and take heed to the things that are written therein. And that means to put application to it. Uh, that there are some things that ought to challenge us in the day that we live. As we read through the pages of Revelation, God is not just informing us of the end-time events, but He is still teaching spiritual truth to us. He's still teaching things that we need to learn and to gain from it. And so I hope as we come to these pages and we study these things, that we will come to it with a view of, Lord, what do you have for me in this particular page of Revelation, this particular passage? And um, we're in the chapter number 12 now. We have seen the seventh trumpet judgment. So let me give you a real quick synopsis uh, just by way of review. Uh, in the very beginning of the book, we had seven letters to seven churches, and we studied each of those churches. And then we dealt with the seven sealed book. And each of the seals were opened, one through six. And then when the seventh seal was opened, we had uh, the uh, seven trumpets. And so now we're dealing with um, the uh, seven trumpets that are part of the seventh seal. And so that's uh, where we're at at this point. Um, and uh, we've dealt with the first six uh, trumpet judgments. Uh, dealing with pestilence in the land, and all of this takes place in the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. Then there's a pause in chapter 10 and chapter 11, kind of a uh, 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 some information that needs to be given there before we press on to the second half, or the last three and a half years of what we call the tribulation period. And this second half is worse than the first, if you could imagine. Uh, it's known as the Great Tribulation period, and the t- our time period. And um, the Antichrist, who originally comes on the scene and makes peace with Israel and comes to them as their Messiah and sets himself up in the temple, uh, at three and a half years he breaks that treaty with Israel. We're going to see why that happens tonight. And uh, very, very important that at that three and a half mark, your mark, uh, the Antichrist is going to break his treaty with Israel. He's going to defile the temple and what the Bible refers to as the abomination of desolation, meaning he uh, is uh, uh, desecrating not, not only the uh, objects of the temple, but the worship itself and the temple itself. 
and uh, he, he does horrific things and causes the nation of Israel to fully understand at that point that this isn't their Messiah. There uh, will still be some people that are, at this point, angry at God. And that's what we have seen through this, is uh, when these plagues take place, uh, people that know that this is God's judgment, they're not scratching their heads thinking that these are just natural disasters that are happening. They know that this is the judging hand of God, and they are defiant. They would rather die than give up their sin. And we found that in chapter 11, chapters 10 and 11, as there were a group of people that were willing to still uh, be involved in occult worship and devil worship and uh, dealing with uh, things of rebellion and things of wickedness and immorality, and they would rather die than give those things up. You know, in, in the early years of my life, that would have been puzzling to me. But as we grow in our life and we see what changes our world is going through, especially in recent years, we see that our society is quickly coming to that point where they do not care anymore what the Bible says. I, I told you all uh, two weeks ago last Sunday, or a week ago this past Sunday, I'm sorry, uh, I had that week prior to that, I had somebody call me on the telephone and tell me that there was somebody who had made the statement and then I had another person uh, send me a picture that they were driving behind a car. They pulled up at a stop sign, and this person had a vinyl sticker in their back window, and he took a picture of it, and he sent it to me. And both of them said, we don't care what the Bible says. It used to be a couple of generations ago that people were not taught the Bible. After our World War II era and people came back and they were trying to rest and recuperate from the, the horrors of World War II and all the things that they had to go through during that time, a leisure became uh, kind of an idol here in the United States of America shortly after that. And uh, people began to uh, not go to church and they didn't have men that were leading their families and raising their children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And they weren't teaching the Bibles at, their Bibles at home to the children. And so we started to have a generation of people who were ignorant of God's Word. They just didn't know it. And then that generation raised a generation who didn't go to church and even more didn't go to church. And not only did they not go to church, but maybe when their kids asked about it, they were derogatory towards the things of God. And that generation rose up and they, they, did not, they, they didn't only not know the Scriptures, they didn't have any interest in knowing the Scriptures. They didn't care if they knew the Scriptures or not. That generation raised a generation of folks, and we're now in our fourth or fifth generation removed from this, but that generation raised a generation of folks. So we had a generation that didn't know God's Word. Then we had a generation who didn't care to learn God's Word. They had no desire for that. Then we have a third generation, and that is a generation who is offended by God's Word, and now we're into the generation that is defiant against God's Word. And you say, how did we get here? It is, we are reaping the results, folks. It's not something that happened in our lifetime. It's not something that happened in the last three or four years. Even though we're seeing it rapidly progress. Uh, this isn't something that's just happened in the last few years. We are reaping the results of generations now of men and women not raising godly children at home. And by the way, it is not up to the church to raise our children. Amen. 
God gave that responsibility to who? Mom and dad. Now, where does the fault lie? Well, it's easy to say it lies with mom and dad. I would say this. I believe that it began by churches not teaching parents the importance of rearing their children rightly. We just kind of let it go, and we were more uh, we were more concerned about getting a number to be in our services, and we were more concerned about people coming and enjoying the time that they were at church. I'll tell you this. When I come to church and the Holy Spirit of God is doing a work and God's presence is there and doing a great work, it's something pretty special. It's something pretty exciting. You don't have to fabricate it by the world. You don't need to get up here and try to make a big show of things. You just simply need to preach the Word of God and let it do its work. And so we find here as we get to Revelation chapter number 12, that these folks are at this point. They, they are defiant to God. They don't care about the things of God. They know that these plagues and that these uh, things that are coming against them uh, are, uh, are hurting them. And so we started talking now about the last three and a half years. And the last three and a half years deal more with specific characters, and it's going to focus on characters uh, that are involved in the last three and a half years, whereas the first three and a half years dealt more with some events that were happening. And so we started last week dealing with verses 1 and 2. We find a woman who's clothed with the sun, and the moon is under her feet, and her, up on her head is a crown of twelve stars. Now, uh, I believe this to be in reference to the nation of Israel. Um, there may be some people that would say, I disagree with that, and that's fine. Uh, when we get to heaven, we'll know for sure. But I think there's a very, very strong argument to be given from Scripture that this is in reference to uh, the nation of Israel. Uh, suffice to say that uh, this nation is responsible for bringing forth a man-child. And this man-child, look in verse number 3, uh, And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns upon his head, and his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child, who was to rule all nations. Well, who's the, who's the one that's to rule all nations? The Lord Jesus Christ. Who's to rule all nations with the rod of iron, and that's in reference to His millennial reign. And her child was caught up unto God and to His throne. Certainly, the Lord Jesus, after He was uh, crucified and buried and rose for the, after the third day, ascended to the Father. And uh, this, uh, there certainly was an attempt by Satan to destroy Him at His birth, wasn't He? They, they were, it was like He was sitting there waiting for Christ to be born so He could kill Him. And so uh, we find the first three characters given here in the first part of chapter 12. More than likely, the nation of Israel is the woman who's uh, sun-clothed. The child that is spoken of here would be the Lord Jesus Christ. And the red dragon that is spoken of here certainly would be Satan himself. And we dealt with that last week. And uh, if you didn't, if you weren't here for that and you would like to hear about that study, uh, you can uh, get that online. In verse number 6, the Bible says, And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she hath a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days. So there is a gap between verse number five and verse number six. We see the uh, the man child being caught up 
uh, to the throne of God. The next picture we see in verse 6 is dealing now with the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. You say, well, Brother Greg, why is that such a big gap between verse 5 and verse 6? Because when God came to this, when Christ came to this earth, his, He was still working through the nation of Israel. It was the desire of God to use the nation of Israel to evangelize the world. That was His desire. But they rejected Him. And because they rejected Him, God didn't, God didn't uh, cut off Israel and say, they are no longer my children or my people, but He did not work through them now, and He has not for the last 2,000 years primarily. He established something called the New Testament Church. And for the last 2,000 years, that has been the instrument in His hand that has been used, the vessel that has been used to accomplish His work. But rest assured, He's not through with the nation of Israel. In the last half of the three and a half years, when they finally realize that the Antichrist is not the Messiah, there will be a return to him. And there will be a return even in the first half of that of 144,000 of them. And this verse number 6 is dealing now with the last half of the tribulation period. So this gap is indicative of the time that God has kind of stopped using Israel as the primary instrument to propagate the gospel through the world. He's now using the church to do that, the local New Testament church. And we are, the Bible refers to the church as the pillar and the ground of the truth. We're the ones that have been given the great responsibility of this. And then, at the end of the second half of the millennial, or of the tribulation period, then God is going to once again begin to work through His people. He's going to pull them back to Him, and they are going to be His people again. They still are His people. He has not cut them off. I don't believe in what's called replacement theology. Some people believe that God no longer is dealing with Israel at all and that they're not even His people and that God has replaced them with the church. I do not believe that. I believe that the Israelites are still His chosen people. The Bible still teaches that He will bless them that bless Israel and He will curse them that curse Israel. And we ought to love the Jews. We ought to pray for the Jews. And we ought to be thanking the Lord that He has allowed us the wonderful privilege to be a part of His great work. Because it really was His heart's desire from the beginning that Israel be the one to do that. And some of the folks from Israel get to do that when they trust Christ as their Savior and they get to share the gospel. But primarily, He's using the church during these 2,000 or so years. And the, third, uh, the last half of the tribulation period, God is going to preserve His people. Uh, up until this time, the Antichrist has had peace with Israel. He's tried to... Um, make them feel good and let them know that He's their Messiah. He's getting ready to break everything. And when He does this, something's getting ready to take place here in verse 7 that's going to cause Satan to get angry. I mean, more angry than he has ever been at the nation of Israel. And he is going to try hard to go and destroy the nation of Israel. And God is going to allow them to flee into the desert. Notice what it says in verse 6, "...and the woman fled into the wilderness..." Uh, where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there two thousand or a thousand two hundred and three score days. And uh, isn't that always where God seems to take His folks for refuge? It's isn't that amazing to you? It's an unlikely place of refuge. There's I mean, what's in the wilderness? There's desert. There's shrub bushes. There's no food. There's no water. And yet that's where God, time and time again throughout the Scriptures, has taken His people or His servants and put them in the wilderness 
as a source of protection. And the interesting thing is, every time he does that, he provides for them. He provides the manna when the children of Israel wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, keeping them protected from a lot of countries who were trying to, to wipe them out, trying to have a difficult time. What about Elijah? Uh, but when the drought was there for three and a half years, he went and hid himself in the caves and had to go down uh, uh, to even be fed by a raven and later uh, a widow. And so we uh, find that God, again, sends him off into the wilderness. When Jesus was born, he uh, sends Mary and Joseph down through the Negev into Egypt in the wilderness area there and to escape uh, the persecution of Herod. And here again, we find him sending his people into the wilderness to, uh, to, uh, in a place, the Bible says, that is prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days. Now, I don't know how he's going to provide for him. Maybe it'll be a return of manna and water. I don't know. He's done it before. He can do it again. God can do what he wants to there. But hold your place here for a moment. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter number 17. Jeremiah chapter number 17. I've used this verse before. It is a parallel verse to Psalm 1 and uh, is a wonderful uh, passage. I love it. It is a very, uh, to me, very eye-opening uh, passage in Jeremiah chapter 17. And let's look in verse number 5. Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. So this is not somebody who's trusting in God. This is somebody who's trusting in himself and kind of puts God on a back burner and says, I can handle my own life. That's the person he's speaking of here. For he shall be like the heath in the what? Desert. The heath is a little shrub bush, a little tumbleweed, if you will. Uh, out out in, over in the Middle East, they have some that are very similar to what we have out west here in the United States. They don't get very deep roots. They don't have water. They spring up fast, and then the winds come, and the heat comes, and they, they, they get torn up out of their roots, and they die, and they just tumble around aimlessly. He says, this, this man who puts his strength in the, makes flesh his arm, and whose heart departs from the Lord, he's going to be like the heath in the desert. And notice this, it says, and shall not see when the good cometh, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness. You see that? In a salt land and not inhabited. Blessed is the man. Now here's a contrast given. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord. And in whose hope the Lord is, for he shall be as a what? Tree planted by the waters. It sounds to me like God prepared a place for this person, doesn't it? He didn't just aimlessly end up there. He was planted there. That means somebody had a purpose. Somebody put a spot in the ground and said, that's where he's going to be. And he planted him there. By the way, bloom where you're planted. Where God puts you, serve him. You say, well, it's not where I think he wants me all the time. I, I, I think I'm waiting for God to show me where he wants me. Do something where you're at. Because he's put you there for a season. He's put you there for a reason. And, and bloom where you're planted. And he goes on to say this. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, and whose hope the Lord is. For he shall be as a tree planted by the waters, that spreadeth out her roots by the river. And this, this tree is in a place where it can experience some of the heat also. He says this, And shall not see when the heat cometh, but her leaf shall be green, and shall not be careful in year of drought, 
neither shall cease from yielding fruit. This is the blessed man, the one that puts their strength in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is and trust in the Lord. God always takes care of those that will turn to Him and trust Him. Whether it's in the middle of a wilderness or whether it's in the middle of the Garden of Eden, God always finds a way to prepare for them and to take care of them. He does that in verse 6 of Revelation chapter 12. Now let's look in verse 7. And this is what causes Satan to just go ballistic. He, he, he just You think Satan's been mad for 6,000 years at what, at what God has done? Uh, you, you haven't seen anything yet until you see these verses. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels, this is another reason we believe it to be Satan, not only that, the, the, a little bit uh, in this passage, it speaks of the fact that he is Satan, the devil. Uh, but these angels that are following the dragon, the Bible says, and prevailed not. So the dragon and his angels were not able to get a victory over Michael and his angels. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. That's a key verse here. If you're in the habit of underlining your scriptures, uh, maybe underline that verse. This is a key verse to understanding why Satan, why the dragon gets so angry here. Understand that when Satan rebelled against God, we're going to look at a couple things here in Scripture, so keep your Bibles handy, if you will. Uh, when uh, when uh, Satan rebelled against God, God cast him out. The Bible says he cast him out of heaven. He says, How art thou fallen, uh, Lucifer, thou son of the morning? Uh, look with me in Jude. Hold your place here. Back up just a few pages to the book of Jude. And uh, let's look here in verse number... Um, Let's go to verse number 6. Jude and verse number 6. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication. So it's dealing here with some angels that had left their first estate. They were not in the same way they were created to be. They were created as holy beings. They rebelled against God under, under Lucifer's leadership, and God cast them out of heaven. But understand this, that Satan still has access to God in heaven. We find that in Job. The Bible says that there was a day that the sons of men came to present themselves before God, and that, that Satan was with them and spoke to God. And God spoke to that. So while he is cast down and has no authority or, or position in heaven, he does have access to heaven. And this is the point where they finally, once and for all, say Satan does not even have access anymore. Up until Calvary, uh, Satan would uh, go up and be the accuser of the brethren, and uh, he would try to accuse the, 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 the folks. When Christ died on the cross, uh, he still tries to do it, but now we have an advocate that stands there beside the throne of God. And uh, when Satan tries to throw an accusation our way, he says, I already paid for that one. Uh, he gets forgiveness on that one. I already paid for it. I'll tell you what, that's one of the best things in salvation I think there is. Not only do we get saved, but we have an advocate with the Father. We have one that's the intercessor for us and stands between us and God and allows us to be reconciled to a holy God. That's an amazing miracle uh, to be able to see that. 
And so this war in heaven takes place. Now, here's a problem that some people make a mistake of. A lot of times, if we're not careful, we'll think that Satan is the opposite of the Lord Jesus Christ, just in an evil form. And if you think that way, then your, your next thought is, then it must be a big struggle. There must be a big tug of war between these two. No, there's not. Satan was created by the Word of God. He spoke him into existence. And he's going to defeat him at the end of all of this. The Bible says, by the word of his mouth. The, the best we could find, as, as someone who's even close to Lucifer, the fallen Lucifer, which we know as the devil, is Michael. Now, in several places, uh, we have, uh, and I'm, I'm going to start it tonight, and then we'll probably have to finish it next week, but I want to talk about uh, some of the differences of angels. We're not going to do a... Um, an exhaustive study of angels in Scripture, but I do want to take a few moments here and pause and teach some things about some of the things of angels in Scripture uh, because I think a lot of times we have some misconceptions of this. There are a number of types of angels that are spoken of in Scripture. The first one we ever find mentioned is a cherubim. A cherubim was found in the Garden of Eden when Christ or when God uh, cast Adam and Eve out of the garden, and He puts a cherubim there. And in this case, they had a flaming sword. And uh, then we find the cherubims that are uh, over the Ark of the Covenant. We find cherubims that are uh, embroidered into the veil of the temple between the holy place and the holy of holies. Uh, we find a number of places where the cherubims are mentioned in Scripture. And they, in fact, over 92 different times they are mentioned in 13 different books uh, in our Bible. And they are the... the most commonly mentioned ones. And they always seem to be the ones that are guarding God's glory. And in the time where man was not able to come into the presence of God, they stood as a guard between God's presence and man. And they did that uh, not because God was mad at man, but because God knew that until the, the redemptive price of Calvary had been paid, Man could not stand before a holy God and survive. And so these cherubims were there to protect and to keep men from having that direct access. And so much so that uh, the high priest, when he had to make the once-a-year atoning sacrifice, uh, was the only one allowed to go into the mercy seat. And he had to back it. He had to cleanse himself from head to toe. He had to put on new garments. And nobody could touch him once he was cleansed, once he was purified, or he would be contaminated. They would tie a scarlet cord to his ankle. They put bells on the bottom of his uh, garment so that they could hear him moving in the Holy of Holies. And then when he took the blood of the sacrifice for atonement into the Holy of Holies, he had to back in. He couldn't face the, the Shekinah glory of God, the presence of God there over the mercy seat. He had to back in. And he would walk backwards, and then he would take the blood, and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat behind him. And uh, the reason they had to tie the cord to him is if he was not worthy, if he had been contaminated in some way in God's presence, uh, he would be struck dead. And no one could go in to get him. And so they had to be able to pull him with the rope out of there. That would be a pretty scary thing to do, wouldn't it? Uh, and so uh, this, they, these cherubims, uh, as best we can tell from Scripture, are there for uh, they're, 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 they're warriors, they're protectors, they're the ones that guard things uh, in Scripture, and that seems to be their role, pretty much. 
Then we have seraphims. Seraphims are only found in Isaiah chapter number 6. And I say that with an asterisk beside it, and I'll explain that in a minute. Um, seraphims have six wings. They surround the throne of God, and they fly with two of their wings. They, fly, uh, they put two of their wings over their feet and two of their wings over their face in uh, respect and, and reverence, and I believe also in humility before an almighty God. And their whole purpose is to fly around the throne, crying, Holy, holy, holy uh, is the Lord of hosts. And the whole earth is full of His glory. And they, they just repeat this over and over. And it's to bring praise and to bring glory to God as He sits on His throne. That's their sole purpose. Now, I have an asterisk there because there are some references in Revelation uh, referring to the living beings. There is some pretty good argument to be made that these are one and the same. Uh, that these are the seraphims. They are around the throne of God. They have the six wings. Uh, they have the four faces. Um, there is a, a very similar description of the living beings, the living uh, ones, in the early part of Revelation as we see the throne room of God and the seraphims. Now, if somebody says, I don't think that, I think there's a distinction there, that's fine. We'll know when we get there. But I think there is some very close similarities there. And so I want to leave that with a little disclaimer. Then we have just kind of the, the regular angels that are mentioned of uh, in Scripture. Uh, you find them coming down uh, out with God to visit Abraham when he's getting ready to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. They later go down into Sodom and are responsible for bringing Lot and his family out. Turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 13. Hold your place in Revelation. We're going to look at this quickly. Uh, Hebrews chapter number 13. And uh, let's look in verse number 2. Um, the writer of Hebrews says, Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. There are times that uh, God sends angels now for different purposes, and we don't always know what they are. And uh, we need to make sure that we uh, treat everyone the way we would want to be treated, the way we want to treat it if it was the Lord Jesus Christ or an angel from heaven. But God has angels that do a work um, in this earth and in this world. And uh, so we understand that there are those types of angels. Then we have archangels. Now, I'm going to share this with you. I, uh, I always thought that there were three archangels originally that they were created, three of them. And I, w I thought that they were Michael and Gabriel and Lucifer. Um, however, I cannot find in Scripture where Gabriel or Lucifer, either one, are referred to as archangels. There's only two references to the word archangel. Both of them are in reference to Michael, and both of them are in the New Testament. Michael's the only one that the Bible specifically says is an archangel. Uh, there are different angels that have different abilities. Some have, are more powerful, some have more authority than others. We find that in the book of Daniel, and uh, I've, I've taken time to show that to you uh, in the past. Um, out of Daniel chapter 9, uh, when Daniel prays and asks for an interpretation to something that he had dreamed or a vision he had had, and uh, for 21 days... He fasts with ash, you know, ashes and sackcloth. 
And after 21 days, an angel finally appears to him and says, here's the interpretation of your dream. And uh, then the, after the angel gave the message, he explained to Daniel, he said, from the first day you prayed, I was sent. But he said this, he said, the prince of Persia withstood me one in 20 days. He was fighting with him. Uh, now, the, you understand that they were in the Persian Empire at that time. Uh, take your Bibles, and I want to share a couple of passages of Scripture here that may be a help to us. Turn with me, first of all, to um, Ezekiel chapter number uh, 28. Ezekiel chapter 28. And uh, we're going to begin in verse 1. We're going to take probably the rest of our time here in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 28. In verse number 1, the Bible says, The word of the Lord came unto me again, saying, Son of man, say unto the prince of Tyrus. Now, uh, if you will, underline, if you're used to underlining or you're okay with underlining, underline that in your Bible, the prince of Tyrus. This is a similar reference to what we find in Daniel when he refers to the prince of Persia. Now, there's no doubt that there was a king of Tyrus that was politically in charge. He was the human person. That was the authority of Tyrus. And then we also find that there was, in the prince of Persia's case, there was a literal, physical king of Persia that was the ruler at that time. However, the angel spoke as if this was not a human power, but a spiritual power that controlled that human leader of that, of that country. I believe this is the case here. We're going to make the argument for it as we go down through this passage, and I think you'll see why in just a moment. <clears throat> he says, Son of man, say unto the prince of Tyrus, Thus saith the Lord, Because thine heart is lifted up, and thou hast said, I am God. I sit in the seat of God, in the midst of the seas, yet thou art a man and not God. So we are knowing that Ezekiel is standing before a king, a physical human being, and he is speaking these words that God is giving to him. But in speaking to this, this human king, he's also declaring to the devilish power, or, and I, I believe personally it was Satan himself that embodied this king, because of the description given here. Um, and he was making that known as well. Because he makes the statement here in verse number 2 that this king of, of Tyre uh, lifted up his heart. He said, I am God. I sit in the seat of God in the midst of the seas. And he says, Yet art thou, uh, thou art a man and not God, though thou set thine heart as the heart of God. And so if that's all we read of it, we would say, Well, that's just a man who was proud, proud and haughty and thought of himself to be God when he really was just a man. But I really believe that he's dealing here with more than just a man. Because as we look in verse number 3, Behold, thou art wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that they can hide from thee. And so this king was able to be a discerner of visions, uh, the things that the astrologers and the soothsayers and those demonically controlled uh, leaders of Babylon used to in instruct the king and influence the king by. The king of Tyre already had this, this ability. He didn't need these men around him. He was, according to this, wiser than Daniel was in this case. With thy wisdom and with thine understanding, thou hast gotten thee riches 
and hast gotten gold and silver into thy treasures. By thy great wisdom and by thy traffic thou hast thou increased thy riches, and thine heart is lifted up because of thy riches. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, because thou hast set thine heart as the heart of God. Behold, therefore I will bring strangers upon thee, the terrible of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of thy wisdom, and they shall defile thy brightness. Well, that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? They shall bring thee down to the pit. That's an interesting phrase. And thou shalt die the deaths of them that are slain in the midst of the seas. Multiple deaths that they will experience. Wilt thou yet say before him that slayeth thee, I am God? But thou shalt be a man. So he's speaking here not just to the man that is the physical representative, but I think once again also to the uh, principality that is controlling him in the spiritual realm. And no God in the hand of him that slayeth thee. Now notice in verse 10. Thou shalt die the deaths of the uncircumcised by the hand of strangers, for I have noticed it, saith the Lord God. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, So there's something more for him. Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. That's an interesting phrase. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Wait a minute. We're talking to the king of Tyrus. He's been in Eden, the garden of God. Well, let's see what else it says here, verse 13. Every precious stone was thy covering. The sardis, topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the, uh, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle, and gold, the workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. Lucifer, an angel of light, a great musician. He was created, wasn't he? The Bible says this being was in Eden, in the garden of God. Thou art the anointed what? Ah, interesting. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast, meaning past tense, upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. By the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned. Therefore, I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God. O covering cherub from the midst of the stones of fire, thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings, and they may behold thee, that they may behold thee. Thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of thine iniquities. By the iniquity of thy traffic, therefore, will I bring forth a fire from the midst of thee. It shall devour thee, and I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee. And they that know thee among the people shall be astonished at thee. Thou shalt be a terror, and never shalt thou be any more." seems like he's going back and forth in this narrative, speaking to the human king, 
regarding the deaths being killed and never more existing. But also there are portions of it that are obviously speaking to the principality involved here. And Ezekiel and God himself refers to this as the prince of Tyrus. He was a chair. What did it say here in verse number? Um, uh, verse number. Uh, let's see where was that? Um, talks about the cherub and the day that was created. Let's go. Uh, verse number. I think it's verse number thirteen. Is that what it was? Um, or fourteen? Yes, there it is. Verse number fourteen. He says, "Thou art the anointed cherub." Almost as if this is, when somebody was anointed in Scripture, it usually meant that they were being uh, elevated to a position of authority uh, or given that position of leadership. And this is an anointed cherub, uh, certainly one of the more powerful ones, if you will, one that had some authority in the, in the heavens. I believe Gabriel is another one. He's one of the few that are mentioned in Scripture by name. Uh, and then, of course, you have Michael. Uh, who's referred to as the archangels, uh, angel. And so uh, I want you to understand that there are, are different types of angels. They each have different roles. God's given them different roles. There are some that are more powerful than others. And uh, next week we're going to talk about what takes place in this war between Michael and Satan, or Michael and the dragon. But uh, Satan at that point will be cast out of heaven and not have the access to God that he's had over these years like he had during the time of Job. He's going to be cast out of heaven forever at that point. And he is going to be so angry at this, so upset, that he now takes vengeance against the nation of Israel. That's why in verse number 6, God has to allow them to flee. In fact, we're going to find that he gives them wings as the eagles to flee and takes them out into the wilderness in a place that was prepared. And he's going to cover them there. He's going to take care of them and love his people again and bring them back to him. What, a, what an amazing plan. If man could come up with a plan, it certainly wouldn't be something like this. Uh, God, is, God is certainly in control. We can fret and worry and wonder about everything. We certainly ought to be praying about the situation of our world and our country specifically. But we should not be worried about it. We should not be worried about it. Because no matter what Satan tries to do, God has it all under control. And there's not one thing that Satan can do that takes God by surprise. Not one. Not one. So uh, we'll look at that a little bit closer next Wednesday night. And uh, we'll see the battle that takes place there. And how uh, Michael banishes Satan. Uh, We'll look into a few more verses of Scripture that shows how Michael battled the devil. This isn't the first time he's battled the devil. Uh, I believe there's at least two other times in Scripture that are specifically stated where Michael battles the devil, and we'll take a look at those. All right? So, uh, a lot of things to look forward to. The wonders of heaven are so amazing, uh, that's just what we know. Can you imagine what we don't know? It's just going to be that much greater. Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed in prayer. Father, we're so thankful for Your Word, how it instructs us, how it guides us. And, Lord, I pray that as we look into these pages, you would help us to understand and to have um, your Holy Spirit's guidance to rightly divide it, to understand its truth, and to understand it clearly. And so, Father, help us, we pray. Dismiss us now with your blessing.